section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the words of the Nicolaitans, because I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Here ends the first reading. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. So I'm just praying, loving God, that our hearts and our minds may be open to you, to hear your words, to know your presence among us, and to know the reality of your love in our lives. Today we are beginning a new series of sermons based around the book of Revelation and John's vision of prophecy to the seven Anatolian churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Just take note, even curates worry about pronunciation of um, things in the Bible. These were churches which were facing pressure from the Roman Empire and wider society, both of whom presented ideals and priorities which were very different to that of the Christian community. The early Christian world was connected by travelling Christians, apostles, prophets, teachers, itinerant missionaries who would travel from place to place, spreading the gospel message, sharing news from other churches as they moved from one place to another. In doing so, they placed themselves in a position of reliance of, um, on the hospitality of others. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were located within about 100 miles of Ephesus. You saw on the map that Shona um, Chauber showed us that they, they weren't too far from each other. And it seems quite likely that they would have formed sort of um, network of um, yeah, a circuit for travelling preachers, of um, prophets travelling in the area. Each of these seven churches faced their own particular challenges, and as such they received a specific message from John, meant just for them. Today I'm talking about the prophecy to the church in Ephesus, exploring the topic of first love, lost church. In the first century, Ephesus was an important city. It was a major port in Asia Minor, um, what we know today as Turkey. With a population of about 250,000 people, it was a bit smaller than Leicester is today, 
but it was still a place of significance. It was a place of trade, of travel, of commerce. It was also the site of the Temple of Artemis, one of seven wonders of the ancient world, but a source of pagan culture. The church in Ephesus has been introduced to us in the book of Acts and in the Pauline letters, and it's described mainly in positive terms. It's presented as a great example of Christian life, faith, and witness. The Ephesian church was active in ministry. They worked hard. They'd been patient under the threat of persecution. They'd avoided the corruption of false prophets recognising the difference between the people who were really following Jesus, heart, mind and soul, and those who were just going through the motions. Today, as Shabra alluded to, there's little evidence remaining of that active church. That once thriving city of Ephesus has long been abandoned, and today it is little more than a site of historic ruins. Now, I'm sure most people will remember their first love. Love is, after all, a big thing, and when it hits you that first time, it um, leaves a memory that lasts in your life. I'm going to give you a big clue if I tell you that my first love was Take That. Yeah. In case you are not familiar with Take That, you are missing a treat. They were a 90s boy band who sang pop songs, and as a 13-year-old girl, I thought they were the most amazing thing ever. With my sister and my friends, we would spend hours in um, my bedroom listening to their songs on cassette, of course, um, rushing into town after school so that I could buy the latest singles. Singles, remember those? Yeah? Um, Putting posters on my bedroom walls. Uh, We had endless talks about whether we were going to marry Mark or Robbie. Um, We learned the dance routines, and there is still no argument in our family that um, A Million Love Songs is the most romantic love song ever written. Uh, No argument there on that. I I won't hear anything of it. I can still remember where I was on that day when the biggest news event of the 90s hit us. Not the death of Princess Diana. No, 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 no. This was much more significant. The 13th of February, 1996... We heard the devastating news. Take that to split up just before Valentine's Day. How could they do that? It was heartbreaking. 30 years on, I can, just about, laugh about it. But at the time, this was serious stuff for teenage girls across England. The Samaritans even set up a helpline for people just to offer specific support um, to help people um, go through that loss, the trauma of um, what they were facing. In case you're wondering, I did not phone the helpline. But I do have really fond memories of Take That. It still makes me smile when I hear them on the radio. But that intensity of that first love, the passion that they inspired at me at the time, has softened and it's changed over the years. But those first loves are big, aren't they? They are all-consuming. They command all of our attention. And it can be really painful when they don't pan out quite the way we expect them to. I think this is true not only when we're on the receiving end of that love, but also when we're the ones offering that love. Of course, John's prophecy today speaks into a love much deeper than the teenage infatuation over a boy band. As we'll see in the weeks to come, there's a pattern in John's prophecies. Each message begins with a reminder of Jesus' presence and power, 
It moves on to praise for what the church has been doing well, followed by a warning about something that has not been going so well, an area of risk which the church should be aware of, before concluding in a promise in which the Spirit speaks into the work of the church and provides a glimpse of the glorious future of the church centred around God. John's prophecies are quite sharp, they're quite pointed, and um, it might be comforting for us to imagine that they're um, targeted at another church, another community. They might even, we think, be irrelevant for us here today. But beware, I suggest, because the warning of danger that they carry can be easily imagined for every church and every Christian community, even for us here at the Martyrs. Love is not just something that we feel in our hearts. It is practical. It's something that we do. We show love in the way that we treat people. It's in the hospitality that we offer, in the way that we demonstrate generosity. These things are at the heart of the gospel. They shape Christian mission. The church in Ephesus had started well. It was inspired to follow Christ in word and in example. And yet the passage tells us that this first love has diminished. It no longer shines quite as brightly as it once did. The suggestion is that as time has gone on, the Christian community has begun to compromise on its fundamental principles, those things that ground it. And it's begun to develop a sort of comfortable coexistence with the pagan world that surrounds it in Ephesus. With recent news of the latest um, census results that indicate that Christians are now a minority group in the UK, I think this raises a really interesting question for us. How do we live in a 21st century world in a way that marks our Christian life as distinctive, that allows us to honour God and to share the gospel, not only here but with the people around us? This passage is a warning for the Ephesian church to wake up, to remember how things were in the beginning, to repent, to recenter, to focus once again on Christ. The implications of not doing so are serious. If they are not successful in recapturing that first love, John prophesies that Christ threatens to come and blot out their community and to take it out of existence. The book of Revelation speaks into divine mysteries, but this is very much a prophecy affecting this world here today. As we've already noted, the church in Ephesus has started with good foundations. They have understood what it means to follow Christ. They have perfected the art of perseverance. They've withstood persecution in turbulent times. Outwardly, everything looks quite good, quite rosy. But nothing we do goes unnoticed by God. These good things are not only noticed, but they are commended. But if it's such a solid example of a dedicated, committed church, what problem could there possibly be? Well, over time things have begun to change. That first generation of Christians had passed on. And while the next generation remained faithful to God, something was lacking. That first flush of love had ebbed away and the passion that had motivated them, that had burned within their hearts, had given way to something a bit more routine, lacking in zeal and enthusiasm. Perhaps the church in Ephesus had become complacent, thinking only about what they received themselves through faith, justification, sanctification, glorification. 
blessings to be enjoyed, to be grateful for. But pure love for God and love for the good things that God provides, not quite the same thing. There is something for us to note ourselves here. Our Christian faith requires more of us than outward compliance. Being disciples of Christ requires us to have hearts that are moved and charged, energised by love. Last week, Burton spoke to us about our vision for ministry, for mission over the year ahead, and he gave us a word for the year, encouraging us to have courage, strength of mind to carry on regardless of danger or of uncertainty. Courage is undoubtedly required of us if we are to face and tackle the challenges of the world around us. But I wonder if there is also courage required of us to look internally into our own hearts, to question what it is really that motivates and inspires us. That can be difficult. It requires us to recognise to address our own flaws, our own limitations. It requires us to ask difficult questions and sometimes to face truths which are unpalatable. I wonder why you came to church this morning. Have you arrived with a burning desire to serve God, to share your love for Christ with other people who equally share your passion? Have you arrived with a heart full of thanks, willing and wanting to offer praise? Or are you here because you're on the rotor and this is what you always do on a Sunday? I am reminded by somebody not too far away from me on a regular basis that this is a place where we should arrive with expectation, believing fully that when we gather in Christ's name, God is present and amazing things can happen. We can't lose that in the routine of worship. I wonder if you can pinpoint a moment when you decided to follow Christ. For me, there was definitely a time when I decided I knew that the power of that love moving in my life, the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life was so great that I couldn't ignore it. There was no alternative for me than to follow that call. It was not a glamorous occasion. There were tears, there was heartfelt emotion, heartfelt desire to live my life in a different way. It was all-consuming and it was exciting and energising. But in reality, the intensity of that feeling ebbs and flows as the challenges of life and the pressure of the world around me um, has an impact. And I suspect this is something that the early Ephesian church would have emphasised with and understood. But I carry that memory with me. And at those times when I'm distracted and disorientated, God is always there waiting for me, wanting me to return to that first love and that place where Christ is absolutely everything in my life. Our reading begins with a description of somebody who holds seven stars, These stars are symbolic of us as disciples sent out to serve, to witness to our faith. They are also stars that remind us of the power of Christ in our lives and his presence in it. We have just one true sovereign, one true Lord, and we are grounded by the intimate knowledge that he has of our lives and our personal circumstances. Like a loving parent, he has the authority to issue 
a threat of judgment when we fall short. So with authority, the church in Ephesus was commanded just to return to the basics, once again to do just what they did in the beginning. This wasn't something for them to do at a random point in the future. They were meant to turn back the clock immediately and do what was right in God's eyes. And if they failed in this, the warning was harsh and stern. The church's presence would be terminated. We are not mausoleums. No church is guaranteed a permanent existence to survive and thrive. We must demonstrate the marks of true Christian faith. Love for Christ. Love for one another. It's not just in the words we say. It is the way we live our lives every single day. Love is at the very heart of everything it means to follow Christ. It is essential to our beliefs and to our practices. Without love wrapping us up and shaping everything that we do, we are liable to drift away, to lose our way. It puts us at risk of um, being on course for spiritual disaster. There is much in the book of Revelation that I find confusing and difficult to understand, but this message is quite clear. All we need is love. It holds us accountable. It offers us protection. It guides us and sustains us. I'll just finish by commenting on the reference in the passage to the Nicolaitans. These were people feared enough to be mentioned by name. But we don't really know anything about them. We don't know who they were, where they came from, or why they were considered to be quite such a threat. It's hard to know what their significance was to the Ephesian church. But they remind us that we should not be complacent. We must always be on the lookout for people and things that distract us, that corrupt us, and lead us away from God. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the things that fixate our passions turn out to be, like a teenager obsession would take that, a mere distraction made irrelevant by the test of time. But Jesus knows us. He knows what we do and what is in our hearts. We might be able to pretend to ourselves. We can put on a show to the people around us. But Jesus will always know the truth. He knows us fully, perfectly, completely. And there is no escaping that.